Welcome to part two of a Capgemini podcast on cloud native. I'm your host, Carl Cully, and I'm joined by Lauren Nelson, a Forrester analyst, Franz Meyer of Red Hat, and Jonathan LeLewis of Capgemini. First of all, we'll be hearing from Lauren, and then Jonathan, and then Franz. Perhaps we could move on to talk about the common misconceptions that continue to prevail about cloud migration, despite its popularity. And these include, you know, you have to choose between a public and private cloud approach. Everything needs to be in the cloud. The cloud is less secure. Cloud migration is difficult. These kind of things. So um, what are the, the common concerns that coming from, uh, from clients? Yeah, and I'll kind of set some frameworks here. I, I talk about cloud migration quite a bit. So some things I'll say is, one, cloud migration is different than cloud adoption. So we are taking talking about applications not built for the cloud and, and talking about moving them to an environment that they're not built for. So an environment that does horizontal scaling instead of vertical scaling, uh, often a monolithic application. And you're taking and putting this environment, and, and that can be challenging. It is, is something that is challenging. What, what's changed in this conversation, and, and really around 2015 when we started to talk about this use case, was it was no longer a fool's errand. It was something that companies were doing all the time. They were looking at, are there key workloads that we could migrate to this environment, either because it provides some sort of advantage for this app, or in some cases, organizations were looking at it as a data center evacuation or a way of they were at a moment of change where they wanted to do things differently. And we see both approaches in the market. We see the application right sourcing approach. So should this app go to the cloud approach? And then we also see approaches that are, why shouldn't this app go? Where they're trying to figure out which applications can't make that move or would be incredibly painful to make that move. Very rarely do we see companies be successful at doing a complete shutdown where they've been able to completely move 100% into a public cloud platform. We've also seen companies be very successful at, at cloud migration projects. So it's not something that, that it's, it's, we're saying it, it's not happening. When you talk about cloud migration, I can't tell you how many case studies wrap in SaaS migration into this, where you're not taking an app not built for the cloud and moving it to the cloud. You're taking a vendor product that they redesigned and switching to that version, a version that was built for the cloud that is managed by a software provider to run and, and scale properly on that environment. There's really two interesting new, new elements that are emerging. One is how much of your application is actually changing when you make that move. For some folks, it's a, a, an application near end of life and they're looking to move it to the cloud for a short period of time and it's not worth the time investment of too many changes. A lot of applications, however, are, are making some changes, whether that's for software licensing reasons, whether that's for performance reasons, whether that's to replace modules with native cloud services. Um, but there is an element of it's just, it's not entirely just staying the same from, from start to finish. So there are different variations of change happening some people look to try and modernize those apps before they go to the cloud. Other organizations are looking to modernize those when they get to the cloud. And we talk a lot about that as migrate then modernize or modernize then migrate. And we see very different tool selections based on that choice in the market. 
just to jump on that, if for me, cloud migration is for many projects a top-down strategy. You know, it's a top-down world. You have really a big excitement from uh, top management about cloud migration. For on my on my side, uh, I really I experienced a, a full migration in in the cloud when I was in Canada in Montreal. We spent one year one year to close the data center and to move everything on Azure. You know, when you're moving on a new cloud, you you are you have the last version of Windows, for example, of Red Hat, of Linux, anyway. And people they are really uh, upset by the fact they have a lot of job to do on premises first before moving to cloud. We succeeded, meaning in one year we closed a full data center and moving to the cloud. But it was really painful <laughs> and really hard. And uh, and we spent a lot of money and a lot of effort to move to the cloud. And after uh, we, we spent also a lot of money and effort to modernize into the cloud. And today, this shift and lift strategy, I'm not... Uh, I'm not convinced today it's the right things to do uh, for most of my clients. Uh, I think on this scenario, it was really specific, uh, but yeah. Yeah, there is a bit of, uh, you know, buzz and fashion. Uh, and sometimes even some CIOs, you know, experienced high-level CIOs, you know, are, are falling into the trap of saying, oh, I go full cloud and full public and so on. I, I, to be honest, there should be a business benefit and uh with almost an IT benefit of moving to cloud and cloud native and, and not just falling and saying, oh, that's the new stuff, let's go for it. Uh, at Red Hat, not only you can be on-prem or you can be off-prem with public cloud providers, and but also it means that even on-prem, you can have multiple type of infrastructure that you're using from bare metal, traditional virtual machines from different type of hypervisor or you own you know, uh, uh, a private cloud very competitive cloud providers, uh, you know, being the Alibaba that we sometimes forget to mention, but it's very big in, in APAC, in Asia Pacific, uh, you know, Microsoft, Google, and, and Amazon, and, and many others uh, like OVH and so on. And basically, that's the choice. The ideal is first, you need, you need to define what is your business need, select at the time what is the best environment you should be running. How do you take a step back from all of the hype in the market you're hearing and think about your scenario and what you should do? And I think one of the, the challenges is, is we hear stories and we immediately apply it to ourselves without looking at the business implications. And there, there's so much truth in some of the, those, the, those comments. So there are certain applications that for cost or performance reasons that are gonna be a poor fit for public cloud. And it, it's tough on being able to pull out those specific scenarios there are circumstances, though, where executives try and take a step back and think about system-wide or portfolio-wide optimization instead of app-by-app -app -app optimization. And there can be a lot of benefits from that approach, but for certain mission-critical core systems, it can also be dangerous and have significant performance challenges. Um, so businesses are kind of stuck in this world of trying to figure out what should they do because there are benefits from multiple approaches and getting answers about their particular context on what they should do for their apps can be really challenging to, to decipher. Perhaps we could uh, move on to talk about the, the hottest 
trends uh, seen in, in DevOps at the moment, and also the trends anticipated on the horizon. So, and I, and I think, you know, Lauren, how great to have you on the podcast, Forrester Analyst, to be able to give us uh, your, your opinion on this. Yeah, I'll, I'll tease up a few and, and see where we go from there. So um, there's a few I'll mention. So one, inserting security in the term DevOps. So especially when it comes to cloud native and, and looking at containers, security is a big concept, especially as it gets easier to develop code. How do we make things secure by design? How do we insert that into the process so it doesn't feel like it's an extra step? Um, another thing I'll add in here is I'm seeing more and more integration into communication channels so that dev can communicate to operations and vice versa. Things like integration to Slack, um, to be able to facilitate that, that communication and culture between these two different groups. Um, I'll, I'll mention that there's a big push towards getting administrators and testers and all members of what makes up IT and all of those different roles to learn how to code and to start modernizing those skill sets. Uh, and then the last thing I'll kind of throw in there is, is um, we mentioned uh, Kubernetes previously a few times um, and looking at the ecosystem that exists around that, we're seeing that become a standard in the market, a lot of different flavors emerging. Um, but with that, seeing other pillars uh, starting to open up within that same ecosystem. So folks looking at things like service meshes and understanding whether it applies to their own circumstances or whether they need something more lightweight for their use cases. What Kubernetes brings, in fact, is an ops point of view of container microservices for me. And uh, and one of the things Kubernetes brings in the table, it's really how you could integrate DevSecOps, as you mentioned, how you could securize your uh, continuous delivery, how you could re you could really fit with the security strategy we have, the, the risk management we have internally. You know, I saw cloud migration being slow because of security compliance because of risk management. This is uh, the real life for most of the company. All the company are not Twitter or Facebook, sorry. Uh, if you fail, uh, if you don't have Twitter, Facebook for one day, it's it's just a mess. It's not so important. You could continue to live. If tomorrow your bank is failing, you lost your bank for one day or you lost all your data center of your data for one day, it could be a huge, uh, huge impact on your company, on the market, on your client. That's why you have to slow down some sometime. And this DevSecOps is really important as Kubernetes uh, is for me is really a, an important technology just to, okay, we have to make it happen. We have to go cloud native, but with the reality of most of our companies, which is security first. Yeah. If you check on the trend on, on, on DevOps is, uh, and we mentioned different things, um, on the infrastructure, uh, we, we mentioned automation. So we have seen adoption of, you know, tools which are really easy to access for implementing automation. So for example, it has been named multiple time Ansible, you know, um, brought a lot of easiness for people from, um, you know, ops team that have, uh, which are not developers and coders to simple write scripting and so on for automating, you know, everything, the compute, but also the networking, the security and so on. So that's one of the things that is happening that is a requirement for this cloud infrastructure and cloud native, you know, infrastructure as a code 
for implementing Cloud Native. That's uh, that's one of the things, automation uh, around this. Uh, the second thing is obviously the platform, which enables to run containerized applications. And it, it, it is clear that today, through the benefit of uh, the, the communities for, cloud, for container orchestration, Kubernetes seems to have won the battle. And, and Red Hat has been, you know, uh, uh, the, the second contributor after Google was uh, released a project on that. And we came with our, with a platform that basically, and we came with that on, you know, almost six years ago now, that implements a, a containerized application with Kubernetes to run anywhere. Can we talk about why open source has become so important? And this time, can we, uh, can we start with, uh, with Lauren? Uh, there are still a lot of open source naysayers out there. And it, it's funny because we've been talking about this for so long around open source no longer being that that stereotypical developer in their their mom's basement working on code. Um, we're talking about some of the leading developers today working and, and oftentimes working at some of the top tech organizations in the world where they have the full-time opportunity of building code that's for the community, for the entire market to be able to leverage and innovate more quickly. And not only are we seeing this, and it, it, it's not that a value prop of, of free or low cost. When, when I talk to organizations about why open source, uh, a lot of people refer to it as the new standards, you know, the, the classic standards uh, development organizations, the new way that standards are developed in the ecosystem where common technology is used across multiple new, new products. Um, the other big thing that's drawing organizations here is, is they view it as an innovation center. It's, it's where innovation is happening, and there's an expectation that it will integrate with other innovative technologies. And in this innovative community, they similarly see it as an opportunity to have a peer-to-peer -peer network that they wouldn't get otherwise, where they can ask people in other industries or even the same industry about how they're innovating and changing technology in their, their environment. So that's what I'm seeing, but I can't tell you how many times I keep coming back and I have to go through that same spiel about it's not a kid in their basement developing, that it is being used by some of the top organizations today. We're talking Fortune 100, Fortune 500, Fortune 2000, with a significant amount of penetration where mission-critical production systems are being run on open source. Uh, when people uh, started to work with uh, with Linux, I think 10 years ago, 20 years ago, it was for a, a reason. He, he likes the way of working with Linux. He likes the way of contributing and so on. And today, the fact is, on most of the company, most of the position, we have people didn't do this choice. 20 or, 50 or uh, 10 years ago. And we have to, to manage them and we have to change their practice and we have to change their uh, daily use of uh, operating system, moving to Linux, moving to new technology, moving to language like uh, we say Java, Python, and so on. To conclude on that, you know, after 20 years of experience uh, selling open source is, um, you know, at the beginning 20 years ago, it was really uh, challenging. Uh, the thing people and enterprises were seeing open source as, you know, first of all, cost reduction. That you know there was this uh, this analogy of open source equal free. Um, nothing is free. There's no free beer in that industry. Um, but that this you know cost saving. 
The second thing that we're seeing is, uh, you know, uh, no vendor locking because everybody access the code. And so you can have multiple choice, uh, you know, on the market. But, uh, you know, to rally what Lauren just said is today when we talk about open source and especially when it connects to cloud, what we see is, is the, the, the source of innovation. Because this collaborative and community model of software development, creating an emulation and you know of people with um, a lot of uh, motivation, um, enabling meritocracy of developing the, the best software, the best technology. And today, the new technologies that are developed, and with the I would say the new kids coming out of the blocks, you know, and, and being passionate. They develop and innovate using open source technology and creating that that uh, that movement. Let's finish up by talking about the future of cloud native and where we're heading, uh, Lauren. We've mentioned some of these themes already. We've mentioned security by design. This concept of having security built in to practices rather than seeing it as something we add on after the fact or have it be a separate step within the development cycle. Similarly, we're seeing this concept of resilient by design being in there as well, where instead of relying on infrastructure resiliency, we build resiliency into the code itself. Today, a lot of the leaders in the industry have resiliency code that checks and tests for resiliency. More and more, we're going to see it built into every stage of that development process where developers are, are building with resiliency in mind. And we also have these checks in place where we're testing for resiliency. Um, the other thing I'll add is we talked a lot about freedom of choice, portability. Um, I expect in the next few years, we won't have to make that choice between app and developer services, that value, that full buffet of cloud options, and the ability to have portability between solutions. And there's some early innovation that's happening. It's something, again, it's, it's been this ongoing thing and this waiting game in the market of where will it merge, who will, will start to, to build solutions that do this. Um, and we're seeing some early promise here, but I think that as we look forward in the next few years, we will finally get to that point where it doesn't have to be a choice, where organizations can be able to move fast and have that, that portability where they're not getting locked in, they're not seeing the, the prices escalate, or the fear that that will happen someday will no longer be a, a challenge for them. We, we still, you know, making the separation between dev and ops, and I think, uh, and obviously we're trying to basically make that together. What we'll see is that first of all, uh, through the, the game of uh, standardization, adoption and so on, things will work together much more easily. For me, the future of cloud native is cloud native is, is going to be uh, is going to be mainstream in in few years. It's going to be as usual job. We're going to have a huge gap on the developer side, but we're going to see soon. We're going to have more or less and less uh, system administrator level one, and uh, because it's a job, we're going to. We're going to automate everything on this side with Cloud Native, and we have really to recycle them uh, on something new, maybe on developers or, or and just to to really fulfill the gap. So yeah, Jonathan and 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 friends, uh, could could you talk about the the nature and the strengths of the Capgemini Red Hat partnership? 
First, Capgemini, it's, it's a worldwide, it's a global company, a global services company. And on this journey, we, we have different partnerships, but for me and for us, it's really important the work we, we've done so far and we're continuing with, uh, with Red Hat. Because I think on my side, Red Hat has the key of uh, succeeding on cloud native transformation. Because with Red Hat, you could start your journey uh, on the on on premises, you could start your journey into your uh, your company and start to be modernized and start to build the bridges uh, between your company and the public cloud uh, world. And uh, this is really, I think, few companies are as capable of that today. And I'm I'm just talking about OpenShift in that solution, but we have plenty of technology like Ansible, Ansible Tower. We really enjoy to uh, to to help our client to deploy it, and we have a lot of success success with Red Hat across the world. And uh, yeah, that's a big point. I think on as an editor, Red Hat has a key of success or the key, key technologies uh, we could bring to the client and we could help uh, and we could help with the client to succeed. Yeah, you, you, you need to clearly understand the positioning of the two companies. And, and obviously, Capgemini is a super well-known, you know, um, uh, service integrator consulting company. And that has built, you know, uh, many, many projects, applications for customers. Red Hat is a software vendor. It's a special software vendor because Red Hat, you know, was born uh, with the open source movement. Uh, and it means that everything we have been doing uh, is open source. It's still technology for which you need to have skills. And if you want to rely on it on the long term, you need to have a partner that is fully, uh, you know, uh, involved, engaged into the communities for developing that technology, maintaining that technology. We have the product and the technology that enable this digital transformation, cloud native approach. And we are also people doing, you know, having expertise on those technology. The complementarity, the perfect complementarity with Capgemini is that as they have understood the importance of using open source technologies for helping the customer to implement those, uh, you know, uh, digital transformation and cloud native approach, um, they have selected, you know, Red Hat, but also part of partnership with other vendors to basically put all that together and, and make the projects help the customer to implement those projects. We've come to the end of our podcast on Cloud Native. Um, thank you very much for listening. I'd like to thank my guests who were talking cloud and clearly on often complex topics. Thank you so much for joining us, Lauren. Oh, my pleasure. And thank you, friends. Yeah, thank you for um, welcoming and hosting on today. I think it was an interesting discussion. And clearly, you know, the, the trio that we have been playing today, uh, I think I've been very interesting because very complimentary uh, as well. So I think it was interesting for us. And last but not least, uh, Jonathan Lewis. thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. I think it's. I'm really happy uh, uh, to have this this call today and to discuss with uh, Red Hat and Forester expert Lorin. Uh, it was really, uh, yeah. I learned a lot of stuff today, and uh, I'm really enjoying the future we're going to have and all the project we're going to have to manage together. I've been your host, Carl Cully, and thank you again. And we'll catch you next time. <laughs>